Good morning, everyone. Let's just um, let's just meditate for a moment or two in silence as we come to God's word, just to prepare our hearts. This morning, as we've worshipped you uh, with our with our lips, with our hearts, as we've stilled our minds to consider what you would say, let it be your word we hear this morning. May your spirit uh, speak to each one of us, and may your living word divide to the points where it needs to. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So we've been tracking through the book of Daniel for a little while now. We've slowed down in the book, um, in chapter 4, because there's an important lesson, a little um, reflection that we've been having over the last few weeks on this issue of pride. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was king of Babylon, greatest bloke probably in his own mind at the time, certainly the most powerful man in all the earth at the time. And yet, he's cut down, he's humbled. And this whole chapter is Nebuchadnezzar speaking in his own reflection, in his own words about what he has learnt. So we've tracked through his warning about being cut down. We've then tracked through that he didn't listen to that warning and indeed he was humbled. And we've left him last week out in the paddock, eating grass like a cow with feathers and talons and not a pretty picture. He is humbled, he is humiliated. So this morning, these last few verses of chapter 4 are, uh, I suppose, a, a lesson in how does he get restored? We've seen him go down at his lowest point, but how is he restored? How is he exalted? And how does he find uh, the, I suppose, this relationship with God that this chapter ends with so beautifully? It's not a pretty picture that we've left Nebuchadnezzar in, um, but at the same time, maybe you can just imagine in your mind's eye uh, a couple of boys playing at bulls. That happens in our house a lot at the moment. Lots and hours and hours of YouTube clips of bulls fighting one another has led to reenactments of, of these events and even retellings of which bull beat which bull and all those sorts of things. Children at all, all children at some point, even us in this room, would admit at some point we've pretended to be an animal. We've pretended to be an animal. Some of us, if we're observed to be eating in certain meals, probably would also be told that we act like animals at certain points. But while play and imagination and bad manners are one thing, it's very different in real life. As we seek to interact with others, we we rarely play at being animals when we grow up, but we do some very beastly things. And as I was preparing this uh, over the last couple of weeks, I realised I do some very beastly things. I thought I'll, I'll be vulnerable and open and say, in the last week I've felt, you know, like I shouldn't have at certain points. There's a moment of vulnerability, but driving to church this morning I realised, 
hasn't been the last week. It's been the last few hours. There was a beast in our home last night, about 11.30 at night or midnight, whatever time it was. He was, he was not a pleasant person to be around. Everybody in the house was up and he was not happy. He was stomping. He was uh, arguing about pointless things. He was seeking for his will to be done above all other things. That was not a pleasant person. That was a beastly person. And it wasn't just because it wasn't midnight yet. It was in the heart of that person. How often are we cruel with our words? How often are we uh, sometimes just arguing for the sake of arguing? How often have we taken things just because we can take them? Not considering the, the needs or feelings of others. If you've ever caught a, a glimpse of yourself in a moment of, of rare honesty, if you've ever caught a glimpse of yourself in that moment, you realise the beast is much closer to the surface than we might like to admit. At Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was that he became a beast. But his eating grass like a cow and growing feathers and talons was just an outworking of what was already in his heart. His chief problem was a direct result of his pride. And these verses, these last few verses of Daniel chapter 4, we see his, his restoration after this time of being a beast. And while we, we know sometimes in those moments of honesty that we do things that are beastly, we, we know when we're being proud, when we're being selfish, when we've desired something we shouldn't have or we've acted on something we shouldn't have. We know we can be unpredictable at times, untamed, uncontrolled. We know in our honest moments and with God's grace and by His Spirit, we're, we're brought to conviction sometimes about them. But what restores us? What can restore us? Because we see Nebuchadnezzar's restoration is that he goes from being a king to a beast, but back to being a king again. So I think there's some insight here for us this morning to how we can be a people restored to God, uh, who reflect God's image once more, that bring praise to him once more. There's two things, I think, from these verses I just want us to think on this morning about how to be restored, and that is that... Firstly, we need to acknowledge and name the beast. We need to name the beast. And then we need to submit ourselves under God's hand, accepting his right works and just ways. Firstly, I want to think about this idea of naming the beast. See, Nebuchadnezzar knows what has happened exactly. He's given us details himself in his own words. And at the end of the chapter is, is like God is able to humble those who walk in pride. He's known what the issue is. He can own it. He can name it. He can't blame anybody but himself and he attributes blame to nobody else. He accepts that God has judged him. When you think of what pride is, if you think of Nebuchadnezzar's example and think about pride for a moment. 
Think of pride being the great reversal of the two great commandments. If the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself, pride then is a reversal of those. Where you love yourself. You love yourself and God is put off to the side and others are just there to serve your end. But pride, of course, is also an expression of a strong desire for self-dependence, that we will not be dependent on God, we will not acknowledge God, we will not give him thanks for what he has done. There's a few verses in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1, <coughs> verses 21 to 23, explain what happens to anyone who does not acknowledge God. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We can see a bit of Nebuchadnezzar in there, can't we? The futile thinking, the exchanging the glory of God for creeping animals. We can see sometimes in our own heart when we have not acknowledged God or thanked him that this also can creep into us. This is a default position of the human heart without God is that we do our own thing. And we have no reason left. And Nebuchadnezzar's issue, as we would look at him, I suppose you would say he's got a physiological issue. There's something going wrong with his body. He's eating grass. He's growing feathers. He's growing talons. Maybe he's got a, just a, some sort of physio physical issue that can be helped. Maybe he's got a psychological issue. Certainly, he's got a psychological issue. But his primary problem is his heart, is his relationship with God. He has not thanked God, he has not acknowledged God, he has sought the glory for himself. He has named himself as the one who has built his empire. He's named himself as all things to all people. In thinking about this chapter, it's one of the most, um, I suppose... A lot of people are intrigued by this chapter in the medical field, especially in psychiatry and psychology. There's, there's tons of journal articles about what happens to Nebuchadnezzar and examining it from all sorts of angles and things. And no doubt, he probably could have received a diagnosis of some form. You know, there's articles, you know, boanthropy. Nebuchadnezzar was, thought he was a bovine, so they give him that title. Or lycanthropy as in transforming into a beast, is sort of a werewolf sort of thing going on there. But all these things that we try and um, diagnose Nebuchadnezzar with, yes, yes, he was very prideful and narcissistic. Yes, he had delusions of grandeur. But all of this, he says, comes from his pride. All these other factors, all these other symptoms, all these other things going around were not his chief problem. His problem was his heart. He was proud. 
I shared earlier, in our honest moments of self-reflection, when we know that we have been proud, when we put ourselves above someone else or put ourselves in the position of God, when we've been selfish and promoting ourselves to the destruction of others around us, we often try to look for a solution, a diagnosis that we can name and tame and put it as that. But, and often there is one. But so often, it's my heart. And we, when we truly acknowledge this by God's grace and the Spirit bringing conviction to us, when we come to, to name it and say that I have sin in me, I have not done what God has desired, I have not loved God with all my heart, I have not loved others as I should, we all have to own that. We all have to name it. And pride is just one of those prominent things. We've just celebrated in our Western world a whole month dedicated to pride, to the celebration of pride and pride of sin. And while we're not surprised when the world seeks to to rename pride as something good and is offended when it's called sin, which also happens. A secular psychologist was actually banned from Twitter for calling pride a sin. We're not surprised when the world does that, but what about when it's called out in us? What about when sin is called out by others or by God's Spirit coming to us and convicting us? How do we react then? Maybe, maybe our beast doesn't transform into something that's going to go out on the, the lawn, nice graying grass on the lawns of the ELC out there afterwards and have a bit of lunch. Our beast might not do that. Our beast might not sprout feathers and talons and, and run around the playground trying to fly. Maybe our beast won't do that. Because when we think about our beast... Or they're mostly tamed, aren't they? You know, our, our beast is, is under control. You know, any outbursts from, from our beasts are always justified. Always. We only yelled at that person because they weren't listening to us. We only ignored that other person because they once said something we didn't agree with or because they didn't acknowledge us or give us credit for something. We only gossiped about that person because... Everybody really needs to know what they're actually like. Our beasts don't eat grass. That's just a silly thing. Our beasts are under control. All our beasts have the same problem. The same heart of rebellion against God, of lack of love for him, of lack of love for others. Just this last week, a few of us were going for a walk on a trail near the coast that bordered right on some farmland. And uh, at the start of the trail and along the trail, there are all these signs of people warning, warning people to keep their dogs on, on leads and on leashes. Now, as, as someone who grew up on a property and knows the kind of damage that a, a dog can do to livestock, I, I understand why the signs are there. And as a personal 
grating thing in me. Sometimes I have to examine my own heart and judgmentalism. But there's a personal thing in me. When people ignore those signs, I, it bugs me. There was dogs running around everywhere that day, and some large dogs as well. And I had to go, oh, okay, I don't like that. I know the damage they can do. And the excuse for people as they ignore those signs is, my dog would never do that. Well, I've had to tell people whose dog would never do that, that their dog is buried down near the back dam under a rock. Because when a leash doesn't stop a dog, sometimes a bullet will. Even the most domesticated of creatures are still beasts. And we know that of animals. But for ourselves, being more powerful and having more eternal consequences, and we examine our hearts and the actions that we're capable of, and we go, we've got it under control. We've got it on the leash. And besides, we can let it off occasionally. It never does that much damage. We not only need to acknowledge we have this little beast, we need to rid ourselves of the idea we can control it ourselves. We need to get rid of the thinking that thinks we can keep this on a leash too. Because all of Scripture tells us if we have sin in our hearts, there's only one way to deal with that, and that's to put it to death. We've been considering in our kids' church over the last few weeks, before we took a break for school holidays, an important doctrine question. What is the fair payment for sin? What is the fair payment sin and of course Romans 6 23 tells us that the wages of sin the fair payment for sin is death that's the fair payment that is what we are all in debt and owe but of course the great hope is that the gift of God the gift not the wages we earn because we can't earn it but the gift that God gives us is eternal life through Jesus Christ Now, Nebuchadnezzar's pride transformed him into something unrecognisable. And he had all sorts of issues wrong with him if you were to look at him crawling around the paddock as he was. But his chief concern and issue was his heart. He knew God had humbled him because he was proud. And he turns from his pride and acknowledges that he needed to be humbled. And this all happens under God's hand, as we see in our next thing that I want to point out. Verse um, 36, 35, sorry, the end of verse 35 especially has this wonderful phrase, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So if we thought we do have a beast, we need to name it, We can't tame it. We need to kill it. The path to restoration then comes from knowing that we need to submit ourselves under God's hand. Now, this week and next week are part of a little mini-series in my own mind of, of Johnny Cash songs. You have to come next week if you want the second one. There's an old Negro spiritual song that Johnny Cash did a version of that you might know, and it's been done by others, I think. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. 
sooner or later God's going to cut you down. That sounds like a really horrible thing to sing, but some of the Negro spiritual versions of it I was listening to, they were very upbeat and joyous, and I was like, oh, that does not quite sit right. There's contemplating that thing that you can try and run your own life, you can try and do things your own way, sooner or later there's going to come a moment in your hand in your life where you're going to be under God's hand. Either under God's hand as judgment, he's going to humble you, or under God's hand in the most comforting way possible, that he is protecting you, keeping you, saving you. Nebuchadnezzar knew what it was to be cut down as he tried to run his own life. And all this happens in a moment from, as we've looked at in chapter 4, from the palace to the paddock and then back to the palace again but his restoration comes in verse 4 you notice when he lifts his eyes to heaven he lifts his eyes to heaven and this phrase is repeated in verse 34 and 36 he lifts his eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me verse 34 and 36 his reason returns when he looks to heaven and what's the most reasonable thing anybody can do is worship God In some ways, his whole life had built up to the point where he's brought low. And we've seen that earlier in chapter. He was oppressing people. That's why God humbled him. But then to return to the kingship from being in that low spot takes just a moment as well. Just takes a moment. How is this possible? Well, Nebuchadnezzar records a little prayer of praise he has here it gives us some insight, I think, into how that sort of moment happened. Remember, he started this account at the start of the chapter. He's like, all this has happened. It seemed, it seemed good that God would show his signs and wonders. And that he'd show them to, to me. And, of course, the signs and wonders that he then goes on to talk about is now his humiliation, his humbling, his repentance then to turn back to God and praise him. And... The beginning and end of the chapter is booked in with this little um, praise of Nebuchadnezzar to God as God being the one in control of, of all things, his kingdom being an everlasting kingdom, the generations uh, being under God. What are we learning from Nebuchadnezzar here? Well, these verses, his dominion is an everlasting one. There's no kingdom outside his reach. There's no empire. There's a his kingdom endures. There's no empire that can outreign God. From generation to generation, God's kingdom endures. No generation is going to outlast God. God is not going to be left in the dustbins of history. No one on earth can be compared to him. They're accounted as nothing, verse 36 tells us. 35, sorry. No one can control him. No one can outlast him. No one can keep him to account. He is the one with all authority, all power. No one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one. 
We think of Nebuchadnezzar through his life, even the, the first few chapters of Daniel, as we've seen a bit of him, he's tried all these things. He's tried to outrun God or overcome God in his own ways. He's tried to rule the whole known world. He's ticked that off his box. He's tried to make all those in his kingdom and empire submit to him and his word and even received their worship. Ticked that off his box. He's tried to set up a, a dynasty that will last forever. Next chapter will tell us how long that lasted. Nothing and no one can outlast God. Nebuchadnezzar's restoration happens when he looks, he turns his eyes to the Most High, the one who had cut him down so he could actually see clearly, the one whom no one can stop and no one can question. I want to acknowledge this morning that's an uncomfortable truth in some senses. It's confronting and uncomfortable to sometimes acknowledge that God is in control. Especially when we see what a mess we've made of our own lives or even when we've acknowledged more rightly and honestly that we've turned from him. We've done our own thing, we've sinned against him, that we've tried to be in charge ourselves and we now realise we're accountable to the God of the universe and we're under his hand. It's also confronting and uncomfortable because we, we want to know what's going on at times. We want to know why something's happening. Sometimes we know why something's happening. Nebuchadnezzar knew why what had happened and happened. But sometimes in life we go through something incredibly difficult and humiliating and humbling and we don't know why. And we don't like that. We want to determine certain outcomes in our lives, but we find this truth that no one can say to God, what have you done? The truth that God is in control, though, is ultimately a comforting one for those who turn to him and trust in him. It's not something to be fearful of being under his hand. Picture what the hand of God is for those who acknowledge him and thank him and seek to live out his word and his will in this life, the best place you could possibly be. Where else would you want to be than the hands of the God who controls the universe? This God whose works are right and ways are just as Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say. Let that be a comfort to you this morning. If you're in a moment right now where you don't know why what is happening to you is happening, know that God appoints times to come to an end, just as he did with Nebuchadnezzar at the end of certain days. God gifted Nebuchadnezzar his reason back and he lifted his eyes to heaven. There's a time for this to end. There's a time for even the worst of possible things to be made right. In some ways, they have been made right, and we look forward to the day when we know and see them sometimes being un they will be undone. Because 
His works are right and his ways are just. God does not waste anything. He does not make any mistakes. He doesn't do anything out of order. And anything that does happen in this life that is chaos to us, he can bring justice. So we see the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar comes from his lifting his eyes to heaven and worshipping the one true God. Pride can turn to praise when we submit ourselves under the hand of God. Even when we don't understand the means he uses sometimes to humble us. We can at least grasp that at the end of all things, God will have glory and praise. There are many things in life that can cut us down. We can cut ourselves down. We can run our whole lives trying to get away from God, trying to make our own path. Even succeeding, as we've thought about over the last few weeks, as Nebuchadnezzar's example gives us. But it's not just our pride and our sin that can cut us down. Sometimes there's things outside of our control that just wipe us out. Or in certain moments can crush us with a weight of burden. There can be finances, there can be difficulties in relationships, there can be health concerns. And if you ever want to feel really humbled, try and think of yourself as a king amongst a whole room full of other kings and queens trying to have their own way. Everybody else in the world is trying to get their own way as well. Even children especially can humble you. Because there's nothing like being a parent and trying to control the outcomes of this life of this individual and even at a young age, you know you're not getting your way. All these things that can cut us low, bring us low, all these things are opportunities to turn and see the hand of God. I'm under his hands, his works are right, his ways are just. I'm going to trust him. Nebuchadnezzar's story here. We don't hear anything from Nebuchadnezzar after this point. So his story ends with praise of God on his lips. It's a beautiful picture. He's found himself under God's hand and not with God as his judge, although he acknowledged that that was true, but his ultimate position under God's hand was as a subject, as a child in God's kingdom. He knew now that the king, the kingdom of majesty and glory of God was far greater than his and he was just a subject in God's kingdom. He returns to his previous state, even more glory than before, but that's not the point for Nebuchadnezzar. The last thing on his lips is not an announcement of how wonderful it is and how his kingdom is going to last forever. It's of God and his glory and his power humble those who need to know him. So as we think of Nebuchadnezzar's example this morning and how we can be restored, obviously we need to stop and consider the
the king who humbled himself, as we've reflected on many times in the last few weeks. As Nebuchadnezzar was a king who was humbled and cut down when he didn't want to be. But we think of the king of heaven, the king of the universe, who was seated in all power and all glory, who humbled himself and came to earth and was willing to pay the fair payment for sin on our behalf. The king who didn't have a hint of pride had never sinned and yet took that payment on himself. When we consider Christ, what wonder and power there is to say we're under the hand of God because we have received from his hand the most wonderful gift. There's so much joy in knowing what Christ has done. If you follow Jesus this morning, and you know in your own heart you've got that beast, the same beast that appeared in our home in the late hours of last night. We all have that still. The fear, the, the pride, the greed. Let me reflect this morning just not on the, the victory that Jesus has won, that he's paid the price for sin, but also that he has risen that you now have access to a life you never previously had if you put your trust in him. Because you can do all you want to. I know I have this in my life and I'm going to do my best to cut it out. I'm going to do my best to create new habits. I'm going to do my best to, to cut off this thing in my life. You can do all that and sometimes it's a very noble ambition. And you might even succeed for moments. But the biggest problem is that you'll not find victory over sin without coming to the one who has conquered it and receiving from him this transaction of his rightness, his righteousness. Handing over to him your sin and the consequences for it, the eternal consequences for it, and receiving from him life to live in him. And that does not mean from that moment on that you want to live in perfection. But it does mean that in this life you have access to great power to overcome, to put your faith and trust in God whose hand you are under and submit to his right works and just ways. The great thing about identifying with Jesus as well is that we don't have to be kings and emperors and rulers in this life. We just have to be human to know that we need him. That there's no one in the history of the world who has not needed God. No one. And the great hope is that God receives all that come to him. Any that call on the name of the Lord can be saved. They can come however they are, just as they are. And restoration is possible for any who turn to God, lift their eyes to him and accept their life is in his hands. That you can trust him with what you can't control and you can surrender to him fully. C.S. Lewis said there are two kinds of people in this life <coughs> who at the end of their lives 
are going to display what they have trusted in in this world. He said that the first person, when they come to the end of their lives and they're facing God, they are going to say to God, your will be done. The other kind of person are going to go through their lives and at the end of their lives, God is going to say to them, your will be done. And the option is that you live this life under the hand of God, submitted to him, or you live your life however you want and at the end of your life, God will give you what you want. Your will be done. The question is, are we willing to be humbled and put ourselves under God's hand here and now and receive this great gift and hope and joy and comfort of salvation and power of living life here and now in new life? Or will we put ourselves under his hand then, knowing we've lived a life here that has not been according to his will? The call for us from Nebuchadnezzar and all of Scripture is that we would come to God, put our trust in Him alone, just as we are. The band are going to come up and sing for us, and I want us in that moment to just worship this great God of the universe who accepts us as we are and doesn't want to leave us as we are, though. Let's pray with me. Father, this morning we are thankful for your word. As much as it confronts my own heart with all these things that I know I still am not as you would have me be. But I'm also thankful that your hand is a secure place for those who turn to you, those who turn from their sin, acknowledge that it's not pleasing to you and come to you for rescue, for new life in Jesus. I pray those here this morning who have not yet maybe turned and put their trust in you or uh, put their faith in what Jesus has done, that even now they would do that. And for us who are following Jesus, Lord, help us by your spirit to know your ways are just, your works are right, and that your hand is the safest place we can possibly be in. Thank you for restoring us to yourself. Thank you for the possibility of that in Jesus. And thank you for accepting us as we are. In Jesus' name.